Can I say we'll give it up? Ray Herndon. Brian Chartrand. Welcome to the podcast. It's, Glad to be here. It's been a minute. I think the last time I saw you uh, was very briefly on New Year's Eve. I was at the Hyatt and I stopped by um, and you guys were on a break. I don't know if you remember. It must have been like one in the morning. This past, this past yeah. New Year's? Okay. Yeah. You guys were on a break. and I, I was probably to... drunk by then. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Not really. <laughs> I probably wish I was. <laughs> well, I, you had it together as far as I oh, can well, tell. Oh, thank you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Whatever. You were born and raised in Arizona. Correct. Into a musical family. That's right. Can you share some uh, recollections kind of musical memories kind of growing up maybe a record that that got you inspired or what music were your folks listening to and what what like what the scene was like when you were growing up and wow. and maybe like early like an early concert memory oh yeah um i think i can remember some of that stuff um <laughs> the drugs and the alcohol haven't played too <laughs> wreak too much havoc on my brain yet <laughs> at my age you'd think so by now no but uh um yeah i mean i grew up in arcadia and uh, at the time you know of course i started singing and playing my mom my mom started teaching all of us brothers um, myself and my two brothers i should say rick and ron rick is the oldest ron's the middle brother and and me the the baby of the family yeah and the favorite one, of course. Of course. You know. I'm the youngest <laughs> of three brothers, too. And I'm also the favorite. But uh, Rick was the drummer and tap dancer. And Rick won awards as a young man, uh, you know, 12, 13 years old. He was on the Luke King Rangers show here in town, which was a long time, 40-year run of a, a show, kind of like the Wallace and Ladmo show. Luke King was the Saturday morning host of the show and he brought kids on that were talented and my brother was one of those. Wow. He tap danced and and he was kind of like the kid uh, on the Mouseketeers that played the drums and tap danced. I yeah. mean, that was probably one of his idols. But, but Rick was a great tap dancer and drummer wow. at a young age and he won a huge contest on there. And uh, anyway, and then us growing up right behind Rick, Ron being the middle child, uh, played accordion. And so he was on the Luke King show as well and um, won his share of whatever awards as a kid. And then I came along and I was kind of the singer. And so the three of us would, would get on the Luke King show at different times wow. or, or together and perform. Actually, Ron and I, because Ron was kind of my accompanist when I was a kid, he played accordion and I sang at three years old. Wow. And that was kind of the start of getting into it. But But our mom was so supportive, mom and dad both. Yeah. My dad grew up in a musical family as well. And so, you know, they were very supportive of, of us being musicians and whatever. They what just, did what did your mom play? Did she, was, she, did she play an instrument? She didn't really play anything. Uh, she wasn't really a singer either. She, I guess she was just, she was one of those supportive musical moms. She wasn't like the, you know, she wasn't a stage mom kind of mom. She was just, she supported us doing what we did. And I started playing accordion as well because of my brother. You know, I love that instrument because of him. When I was pretty young, when mm -hmm. I was probably four or five, I picked up the accordion and went to guitar at seven. But, um, but when I was three years old, my dad uh, knew a guy that was looking for a, a, a girl to sing a song, a Christmas song that they'd written. And they were going to, they asked my dad if, if he knew anybody. He goes, well, no, but my son is a singer and he's three years old, maybe four at the time. I don't know. It's 1964, I guess. And uh, so they flew us out to Hollywood, and I did my first recording Wow! in Hollywood at, at Hollywood at 
Hollywood uh, RCA Victor Studios. Yeah, yeah. And I remember they, they had to hypnotize me because I was so mesmerized by everything around me. I couldn't focus on anything, you know. So they brought in a hypnotist, so I'm told. <laughs> so I could concentrate on singing these songs. Oh and they God. were Christmas songs. And my brother Ron played accordion. And they had some studio musicians there. And I recorded two songs. So that was my my introduction into the the professional music business. Do you have those recordings? I do have them, yes. And (laughs) it's unfortunate because they're actually really, really... I mean, they sound very professional, as you can imagine. And, you know, I'm this little three-year-old kid singing these Christmas songs, and one's called Christmas Eve. I post it on Facebook every year because, you know, there's no other way to release songs anymore. Right, right. (laughs) So a lot of people have heard it, you know. But anyway, so... But progress on through the years, and and you know my brothers and I played together a lot, and here locally. And What's the age uh, gap? About eh, seven years between me and Ron, and probably four or five years between Ron and Rick. So very similar, actually, to me. I have a six year old, six year older than me. He's in the middle, and then four over that to Chris, my my oldest brother. So a similar gap, ten, like a decade, basically, right? Yeah. They're, they're, they definitely had moved out way before, you know, me. Right. And they, they were actually on the road with a band called the Gringos when I was growing up. And Ron was like 13 when he went on the road. My mom always regretted letting him go at such an early age. <laughs> wow. And sort of claims that that's what really screwed Ron up. No, just kidding. <laughs> but uh, no, Ron is, you know, he got out there at an early age. He took a correspondence course at, at Arcadia to get through that, to get wow. through high school. And, and I mean, you know, he was playing music, both Rick and Ron, both and having Damn. living the life at yeah. that age. Uh, wow. We went to, uh, when I was nine years old, we went to Hawaii to see the gringos play there. They were playing a place called the Mary Monarch in, uh, in, um, Waikiki. So my parents and I went there, I was nine years old, 1969, spent Christmas there, which was quite an experience. Yeah. I have to say at, at that age, I'm just like, wow, you know, yeah. probably, Needed to bring a hypnotist in then too, because <laughs> to it look was at. it was you know strange looking Santa Clauses in in grass skirts was weird. Right. right. Um, but anyway, but that was fun. First time I'd ever seen sushi. We went out after my bro- my brother Rick got married there, and they're still married by the wow. way. Wow. And uh, we at the time I had no idea what sushi was. I don't think any of us did. Right. But we went out late to look for food, and we went to this place, and they brought the food out, and it was like my dad's like, "What the hell is that? I'm not eating that." <laughs> And, you know, many years later, I realized it was sushi. (laughs) You know, we didn't want anything to do with it at that time. But I love sushi now, of course. Yeah. As a matter of fact, it's a great sushi place right down the street from here. I'm not sure how you pronounce it, but it's spelled F-U-K-U. Fuku. Fuku. I want to try it. It might bring back some good memories. But anyway, um, yeah, so those guys, you know, they were on the road for a long time with the Gringos. And it was a great band. It was like a... Uh, horn band. They did a lot of uh, uh, Herb Alpert and the Tijuana Brass sure. music. Yeah, but I grew up listening to that. They would rehearse in, in our family room at, at home. At, you know, my mom and dad's house at, yeah. in Arcadia, and us kids would sneak under the, you know, sneak in the Arcadia door and lay on the ground, and listen to them rehearse. And, yeah, yeah. And uh, you know, I grew up just you know being around music like that. Yeah, and listening to. You know, I really, my dad was a country guy. He listened to country AM radio back then. So like Buck Owens was on the radio and guys like that, of course. And I grew up listening to that, just sort of being subjected to it. Not necessarily did I like it or not like it. I just 
I heard it a lot, so right. I knew it. I knew the music. Right. But I was also listening to to stations like Kriz and Crux, K-R-I-Z, which was the rock station when I was growing up here, and the pop rock, whatever you want to call it. Like yeah. when I was, I remember I was about, I think, 11 years old. It had to be 1971 when, like, listen to the music, the Doobie Brothers oh, song man. came out, right? Yeah. So I'm 11, and Joe Mall, who is... You know, longtime friends, the Mall family, musical family from here. Uh, Pat Mall and I are good buddies, but but Joe was a guitar player in a band with my brothers uh, at the time, and he showed me how to play that song on the guitar. Mm-hmm. You know, back cool. in, I'm thinking I was 11 years old, wow. but I was listening to that kind of stuff. You know, yeah. And I played weekends with the Mall family, Pat's mom, and um, you know, I, I grew up just playing and being around all kinds of music. So that's why I have such a messed up, you know. <laughs> Variety of music in my brain all the right, time. Right. <laughs> I can't figure out which one I like better. Did have you ever been to uh, Buck Owens' place, Crystal Palace in Bakersfield? I have not been to the palace yet, um, but but uh, Buddy o, Buddy Owens is a longtime friend of ours, of course, and and I got to know Buck a little bit over the years when uh, you know he would come to Phoenix and the Herndon brothers back then. We would play a lot of the KNIX Christmas parties and. Um, different parties and Buck would show up and cool. I had the opportunity a couple times to talk to him, you know, and cool. as a young guy, I was like maybe 26 years old still at that time, I think when we were playing those gigs. And I remember one time we played a gig at the point Russell's roost area, you know, whatever that point is South mountain mm-hmm. and Buck was there and I had a, a conversation with him and he told me that together again was, uh, you know, was he hated that song. He, he did. He hated it. It was a B-side to uh, Act Naturally. He said, Act Naturally, I thought was going to be my big song. And Together Again became my career song, and wow. I never thought it would be. Yeah. But his point was, son, all it takes is one song. Yeah. You find that right song. And he's right. I wow. mean, he was right. But uh, anyway, it was, it was neat to get to talk to Buck. Yeah. You know. Did you, um, you did high school in Arcadia? I should have gone to Arcadia. I ended up going to Chaparral. Okay. Because I grew up in the Arcadia area, but uh, and I went to Kachina, which is no longer there. But um, I knew a lot of people that went to Chaparral. Chaparral was kind of a new school at the time. And with Handlebar J being right across the street, my mom and dad worked there. I got to know a lot of people in that area, including Pat Mall. And he was going to Chaparral, so we were musical buddies. Mm-hmm. So I ended up going there, making the drive every day. So Handlebar J was started by your father? No, it was... Uh, it's actually started by George and Joni Louts. They started it in '67, uh, okay. And they needed a band, and somehow or another, George found my dad because my dad had been playing around town for many years, and uh, my dad knew the guys to put the band together. So they formed the Country Score. George Louts was actually a great jazz guitar player as well, and he owned he and Joni, his wife. That's where Handlebar J comes from. Oh, okay. George had a mustache, and his wife's name was Joni J. So there Handlebar J. And very unique name, and and they were great people. And George was a very creative guy, great jazz guitar player, but he also played country, and so he played with the band as well from time to time. He'd kind of come and go, come and go, but um, George took lessons from the great Johnny Smith, a jazz guitarist. You know, so I always looked up to George as a as a young guitar player. He played things like Honeysuckle Rose and did his little take on him, and I I was always fascinated by that. But uh, but they started Handlebar J, and my mom and dad. Uh, my dad played in the band there, and then they needed a waitress. And my mom at the time had worked for Manuel's Mexican Food, the original one on 32nd Street in Indian School for Manuel. And um, 
she had worked there for five years or so, and then they recruited her to Handlebar, and so she started working there as a waitress. Wow. So her and my dad worked there, and George got started drinking a little too heavily, which that that business can tend to do to people. Right, <laughs> Thank, right. Thankfully, I don't drink a lot; so otherwise, right. I'd probably be in the same boat. But <laughs> but uh, they they decided to get George out of the business, and so luckily, I had a, a uncle and aunt. My uncle was you know had the 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 means to get my mom and dad into the business. Mm-hmm. So they bought the building and the, and the property and put my mom and dad in the business. And so carried it on. And w- what year was that? That was uh, 75. Wow. So the George and Joni first tried taking the bar out of handlebar J. Huh? Yeah. Thinking, well, George, we don't want George being around a bar. Let's take the bar out. <laughs> wow. And that didn't, that went over like a right. you know, sack of bricks. Right. <laughs> and so, uh, Anyway, after that happened, then, of course, Handlebar closed, and my mom and my dad, a bunch of them went up to work up at Rawhide temporarily uh-huh. until they could figure out what was going to happen with the Handlebar. Yeah. So then we ended up buying it, thankfully. And um, and then, you know, about, I don't know, six, eight months later, we reopened it, put the bar back in. The original bar, by the way, really? is at the oh. hole in the wall at the point. So they took the original bar out and moved it to the hole in the wall at the Point Resort, wow. and it's still there. No kidding. <laughs> Isn't that funny? Wow. Yeah. Handlebar J's, uh, is it like the, maybe I read somewhere, it's like the longest running like country western bar? Is that is that a thing? It's, it's definitely one of the longest running here. Yeah. I mean, you know, I've been all over the country and, and out of the country, and there's just not many places left, especially now. Mm-hmm. At one time, you know, 25, 30 years ago, there were places. Yeah. But here in town, I mean, obviously, Greasewood Flats is gone. Pinnacle Peak is gone. Rietta Pass is gone. They've been gone a long time. But those were the, you know, three places that yeah. were kind of with a handlebar. Rusty Spurs been there forever right. in Old Town, and they're still there. Now, they've been through several different owners you right. know, over the years, and they just got sold recently. Matter of fact, a year or two ago now. Um, but, but we, you know, handlebars had two owners, the original wow. owners and us, and wow. that's it. And we've, you know, we've already owned it for, um, I, I own it now. I'm the sole owner. Actually, I, I, after my mom passed away, I, I opted to go ahead and jump on in and buy the brothers out, which I did. And, um, you know, but it's going on, well, almost 50, it'll be, you know, we get, two or three years shy of 50 years now wow. of owning it. Did I hear stories that kind of back in the day, in the early days before Scottsdale north of Shea, you know, it was like horse ranches mm-hmm. and that and people would ride their horses yeah. to handle bar Is that- Yeah. Oh yeah. That's all, all that area out there for years when I was growing up as horse property. Yeah. And, um, just gosh, north of, um, Shea, it was, you know, it was just all horse properties. Right. And so a lot of people had horses. So they, they were hitching posts out in front of Handlebar and they would ride their horses down the horse trails and come up there and <laughs> tie their ponies up out in front and go get beers. How awesome is you that? Know? I know, right? That's just the coolest. Well, that's, and that's, you know, Handlebar was the only place there. There was nothing right. around it. Right. You know, tumbleweeds. That was it. Wow. You know. For more information about Handlebar J, just go. To handlebarj.com. You can check out uh, the live music schedule. You can um, check out the menu. It's really an incredible spot. And anytime I have friends in town, I have to take them there. It's just this, it's just an experience. It's like a really iconic Arizona bar. 
and they obviously offer incredible live music. I've seen the Herndon Brothers play, and the band is fantastic. And it's not just country music. I mean, they, they do other styles of music as well. Everyone's welcome. It's not a country bar. It's really an Arizona bar. And, oh, by the way, do you like ribs? Because they have killing barbecue ribs. What more do you want? Ribs and live music? Come on, stop being so selfish. Let's get back to my chat with Ray, handlebarj.com. After high school, did you do the college thing? I did. I went to Mesa Community College, um, met uh, Grant Wolf when I was 14, uh, 1974. I went to the first, uh, I think it was the very first one they'd had of the Mesa Community College Jazz Workshop. And I met Joe Pass. I took a couple oh, lessons with shit. Joe Pass. I, of course, had no idea who he was <laughs> at the time. <laughs> and Carol Kay, the great bass player, yeah. was there. Dick Grove, um, Lanny Morgan, um, a lot of just jazz This was at Mesa icons. Community College? Mesa Community College. Grant wow. Wolf, who was the head of the music department there, and God bless him, passed on. But he was a huge mentor to all of us guys, myself, and a lot of the local Phoenix guys, uh, uh, Steve Marsh, great sax player lives in LA and, and a lot of guys, you know, um, but, um, Grant had the influence and the pull to get these guys out here to do these summer workshops. And that was the first year. And I was, I was 14 years old. Oh so I'm, I'm learning my first ninth chord from, from Joe pass, <laughs> you know, of all things. And anyway, so several years later, when I ended up going to Mesa to college uh, in 79, I, we went on a college trip and we ended up I think the the band, jazz band that was led by Grant Wolf, um, that I was also in, we went uh, to the lighthouse in Hermosa Beach and to see Joe Pass. Oh. And of course, Grant knew him because he brought him into these jazz where he goes, Joe, you remember this kid? Remember this kid? He was 14 years old. And Joe's like, I do remember that guy. And I was like, wow. wow. Now I know who Joe Pass is <laughs> and, and he remembers me. You wow. Know? wow. What a, what a, I mean, you know, I, what a fortunate thing for me right. to, to just be in the same room as Joe Pass, let alone take some private lessons from an iconic yeah. jazz guitarist, you know. Yeah. I wish, gosh, I wish I would have been able to learn more. Yeah. You know, at the time I was just just green. Right. Just trying to find my ass with both hands, right. basically. I still right. am, really. But <laughs> still working on that. <laughs> yeah. More so now even then, I think, than then. Um, so did a two-year program? Is that I did two years, yeah. yeah. Um, I, you know, the academics were not interested. Uh, it, I wasn't interested much. I took some, um, I'm not sure why I did. <laughs> All I cared about was playing music at the time. Yeah. And I was in the jazz band. I was in theory classes and the theory really didn't uh, excite me a whole lot either. Right. I didn't, I couldn't figure out what I could do with a, a Pagetura, you know, uh, or I don't even know what big, the hell that big is. words like that. Right. That really didn't mean much to me either, right. <laughs> you know, <Right>. even still, <laughs> but, but you know, those are classical uh, things that I didn't really feel like I needed, but you know, I went through the courses anyway. Yeah. Uh, choir as a great, they had a great choir at MCC. It was fun mm. and it was great. I learned a lot and just doing that stuff. Mm -hmm. And then being in the band with Grant Wolf was, was quite an experience too. Is Grant still alive? No, he passed away. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But he was, he was quite a hip, hip dude, you know, in the, in the seventies. I mean, he just, he had long hair and a beard, and he didn't put up with any shit from anybody. Yeah, any kids. He just told told it like it was. If you were screwing up, I mean, he was like, 
he was all up in your shit. <laughs> yeah. And we needed it. You know, right. we did. And, but you know, I, he was, he was really a sweet guy though. He gave me a, basically a scholarship to go there when I, I can't remember how, how he knew me or whatever, but he gave me a scholarship to go my first year Great. to college. That's awesome. After college and stuff, I, I, I played at uh, Mr. Lucky's and, uh, talk to was, me about that because yeah. I, I moved here and it wasn't a thing anymore, but right. I, I've spoken with a couple of people um, and they mention it. Right. Well, it's interesting. You know, I, I look back at now, you know, I'll be 62 this year and I just think, you know, how weird life is in general, but in any kind of business, but musically for me, it's funny how things, one thing leads to another mm-hmm. and, you know, people always go, well, how do you, how do I get my son? You know, how do you do what you've done? I don't know. I really don't. I just, I've done what I do because I love doing it, I right. guess. You know, I tell them, I, all you can do is just get out there and play and, and hope for the best, you know. Right. If, if, if things don't work out, then, you know, you do something else, I guess. But for me, you know, I, I played, obviously, as a young kid, and just that's all I ever did. I, my brother Rick played at Mr. Lucky's several years prior to me going out there to play, but he played with Jay David Sloan. And I, I went out there. I was probably at the time, I, I think I was maybe 17, 18. I wasn't old enough to be in there, but I went out there to hear Rick play a time or two. And I didn't really, um, maybe I didn't absorb it then, but several years later, uh, I started going out there after hours for some reason. Um, something led me out there. Oh, my friend Pat Mall said, you got to go out and hear the band now, you know, with Jay David and, Billy Williams and Jeff Boree and a guy named Dave Measle was playing bass and uh, Mike McLean on piano and Rick Lightower on steel guitar. Mm. So I went out there after I, I was playing at Handlebar at the time, and this is about 80, I want to say 81 or 2, and I just lost my father at that point. He, he passed away in 81, so it was quite an interesting, weird year, you know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but still into the music, and um, so I would get in my car and drive out to Lucky's. It was like a 30, 40 minute, 45 minute drive. And this is on West Grand, right? West Grand, 37th Avenue and Grand. So, wow. and I would finish at Handlebar at 11, 30, 12 on a weekend night. And I hightail it out there to hear those guys to get there maybe for their last set. And then they played after hours. So I'd hang out and, and they were a killer band. I mean, they were doing stuff like give me the night by George Benson. And, oh, damn. and then they were doing, you know, family tradition and eastbound and down and, and just, and doing their own take on it. It wasn't necessarily like the record. J. David Sloan was always great about, I mean, he is who he is. And so when he sang a song, he sang it like J. David. But it was a song, a current song on the radio. You cool. know? And the band kicked ass. And, and Mike McLean was just hugely talented and just a huge force on the piano and singer. And very innovative and humorous the way he played. And so anyway, it was just an all-around great band. Great sound system. Mike's wife jenny did the sound so huh. she was in the sound booth and so the piano was always mixed really hot hot in the mix but it was great because <laughs> right because that's one of those things where you know if if a musician isn't playing you know something that works in the track then you kind of hide mm-hmm. them in the track yeah, you bury <laughs> when they're playing great stuff you right. want to hear everything they play right and that's mike he could he would fit whatever it was he just knew how to do that yeah which i always respected that but anyway just a great band and uh fast forward a few years later 
So my friend Matt McKenzie, who's a bass player, he lives in Nashville now, and he and I went to MCC together, basically grew up playing together. But Matt was a pure jazzer. And uh, in about 1983, I guess, or 82, he called me. I was in L.A. with my friend Ted Goddard. We were actually went there to take some lessons from Joe DiOrio, mm. great guitar player, just passed away, great, great jazz player. And uh, Ted and I are out in L.A., and Matt gives me a call. And let me let me backtrack. So Matt wasn't really a country guy; he was a jazz guy. So I was like, Matt, you got to go out and hear this band at Lucky's. They're kick ass, you know. So Matt's like, oh, kind of went out, checked it out, and then he went, oh, these guys are kick ass. So next thing I know, I'm going out there myself, and then I see Matt there by himself. Mm-hmm. I'm like, oh, you do like this stuff, you know? <laughs> so he got into it, but so. So maybe a year later, I'm out in L.A., and I get a call from Matt, and he goes, man, I, I have a, a dilemma. And we're 23, four years old at the time. And he goes, I just got the jazz gig with the quintessential jazz gig in Phoenix with Charles Lewis. Mm. And his, you know, all of our hero, Charles, you know, and that's what Matt wanted to do. And he said, but now I've been offered the Lucky's gig, uh, and I don't know what to do. Wow. And I'm like, well... You know, what do you got to do? You, you're a young guy. You, you got your own apartment. You got to pay the bills. It's a great band. So, I mean, love Charles, but it's kind of sporadic, you know. Right, it's not right. a lot of money, unfortunately. But um, I said, this uh, it's a great band. You and I both know that. You right, know? Right. So anyway, Matt ended up taking the, letting the, the Charles Lewis gig go and doing the Lucky's gig because of all those things. Five nights a week. Right. Great players, blah, blah, blah. And so not long after that, I'm still playing at Handlebar and going out to Lucky's and sitting in and stuff. And uh, so Bob Sikora and uh, his right-hand guy, Bunky Legate, show up at Handlebar. And I'm like, I know who those guys are. Oh, my gosh. You know. So then they offered me the gig. Oh, so, cool. So Matt and I became part of the band. And, of course, we were, we were ecstatic and loved it. And then uh, another guy, Matt Rawlings, who great piano player and um, – at the time, he was 17, and Mike McLean had moved to Texas, and so we needed a piano player. And so we, you know, they had tried out a few guys. Tim Ray, who's another local guy, great piano player, had come and played, and Tim's awesome too. But Tim was kind of, he was more of a jazzer as well, and he, he fit in great, but he kind of wanted to stay in the jazz mm-hmm. world, even though he did the gig and he loved the guys, but he ended up moving to Boston where he still lives and okay. teaches at the conservatory or wherever, Berkeley or whatever, maybe both places. And Tim's a great, great dude. And uh, But anyway, um, Matt McKenzie said, remember this guy, Matt Rawlings? He was like 15 years old and came to MCC with the with the young sounds. And I'm like, yeah, I do. And yeah, he was a little kid, you know, And but he was a great player. And so we, Matt contacted Matt Rawlings and said, hey, we're looking for a piano player. At the time, Matt's 17. Oh, my God. Matt comes out and gets up on the piano, and we all just went, you know. <laughs> Hire him now. <laughs> and so uh, we hired, you know, the band hired Matt, loved him, and he fit in great. And at the time, he had a long ponytail, and he smoked cigarettes one after another, you know. And, but he and I were, were close buddies. We we drove to, together to Lucky's every night because he lived on the same side of town I did, mm-hmm. and it was a 30-minute drive. Yeah. So on the way there, we were listening to everything from the Yellow Jackets to Michael McDonald's first record and just, you know, Huey Lewis's first record and oh, all yeah. that stuff that just influenced us big time, you know, at yeah. the time and, you know, loving it. And then we'd stay and play and we'd play after hours and we'd play jazz. And, and it was just a, a such 
a huge part of our all of our musical right background me and matt and matt and you know of course matt rawlings has gone on to do you know way more than any of us i mean he just he's produced willie nelson's last couple records and he's played on just about every country record you can think of from keith whitley to shania twain to everybody and larry carlton and and i mean he's just done everything i mean matt's a monster he's he's one of the best in the world really wow yeah um talk about fucking living the dream i mean Mm -hmm. like a steady gig with your friends making mm-hmm. good music, mm-hmm. having a fucking ball. Right. I mean, yeah. Who could ask? Who could ask for anything more? <laughs> right. <laughs> that's what I. You know. That's what I. And that's what we were doing back then. We so we that band in 1983 went to Luxembourg. Uh, it was myself, Matt McKenzie, Matt Rawlings, Jay David Sloan, Billy Williams, Jeff Boree, and it was a six piece band. We went to Luxembourg. Uh, one, I think it was. When was it? Uh, I can't remember the months now, but we went over there and played this thing called Schuberfauer. It was a big fair. We were going to be there for a month. It was weird. I won't get into all the uh, details of, of the strangeness of getting there and going into this Chinese hotel and going, mm, I'm not sure about this. You know, the guy was growing soybeans in the bathtub. Weird shit. It, it, we got out of there quick. But anyway, ended up at a great uh, hotel, it turns out. And, um, but we were there for a month, and we played, I think, four, four or five days a week in this tent for the American Entertainment. Yeah. It was us, our band, and, and it was a, a Las Vegas show band that also played. And sandwiched in between us was then a guy nobody had ever heard of by the name of Lyle Lovett. Ah. And so Lyle was on the show. They brought him in, Texas singer-songwriter Lyle Lovett. You know, right. we didn't know. Lyle was actually running the spotlight for us when we played. <laughs> And so anyway, Lyle had given us a tape, you know, a cassette tape for those of you that don't know what those are. They're like a little plastic thing that you put in a two reels. Right. And uh, had some of his music on it. And we're like, well, this guy's actually really good. You know, it was just little demos of him playing acoustic like Cowboy Man and Closing Time and Farther Down the Line and some of this early stuff. And we're like, we should work up some of your songs with you. So, so we did. And the band just hit it off with Lyle right then. And he loved it too. Yeah. And so fast forward six months later, maybe less, he, Billy Williams said, Lyle, you should come out to Arizona and let us record and let me record. I'll produce it. And Billy's done a lot of producing at the time. So this is again, 19, what, 83. So we went into Chaton recording, which was in Paradise Valley. The original Chaton. Original Chaton. Yeah. yeah. And we recorded about, I don't know, 12, 15 of Lyle songs, which included Closing Time, Farther Down the Line, Cowboy Man, um, you know, a handful of, of his tunes. Wow. And um, we recorded those. Lyle shopped them around. And anyway, you know, with everything that goes along with shopping songs around, getting getting the door slammed in your face a few times, I'm mm-hmm. sure, the right guys heard Lyle's stuff and loved it and, and ended up in Tony Brown's hands. He signed Lyle, kept all those recordings. They they did a little tweak here or there on certain things. Uh and uh, basically put that album out, the first album, like we recorded it here. Wow. And that became Lyle's first record. And next thing I know, I'm in Nashville doing a, a show called um, New Country with Lyle. And some of us, uh, Matt McKenzie, Matt Rawlings, myself, I think Jeff was on that. And there was a steel player from Nashville, uh, Lloyd Green, who's a you know legendary steel player, I remember, on that show. And um, we did that, and we did Hee Haw, and we did all these shows, uh-huh. and you know, 
there we there you go i'm wow. like wow i'm living the dream right right like you said yeah so so that's early 80s you start and, and is that when you kind of really start to work with lyle kind of full time did that ever and and so going on the road basically and about 85 um you know we would go do little things here or there but then i think about 85 is when really he started getting out on the road more because because 83 84 is when we recorded the record mm-hmm. and did all that so it takes you know it took him yeah. about a year to get anything happening mm-hmm. and so about 85 i think is when we started going out and doing shows i, I remember doing shows with alabama and weird weird opening act shows mm-hmm. with mm-hmm. Lyle didn't really fit those necessarily. They were trying to fit him into a country mold, which mm-hmm. he's not at all. Right. I mean, he's got songs like Cowboy Man and Farther Down the Line, but um, but then he's got songs like, you know, <laughs> you know, um, My Baby Don't Tolerate later on. But, you know, he's right. all over the place. Right. But he's he's basically his own genre. Right. Know, Texas right. singer-songwriter. But even more than that, it's, I mean, he's probably the... Out of all those Texas singer-songwriter guys, I mean, Lyle is probably the most polished, huh. you know, uh, I think, in my opinion. Um, has the most, like, I'm sitting here looking at your Steely Dan cassettes up there. But, uh, <laughs> but you know, the most organized. Lyle's very, um, you know, he's got his ideas of what needs to happen. And that's why he sounds like he does. Mm-hmm. It's, it's him, yeah. you know. And Billy Williams is a great producer, but really, Lyle is the one that's in in charge of what it sounds like almost to the point of getting pissed off at him. Uh-huh. You know, if you're the producer, you're like, well, right. how come you're not listening to me? I know more than you. But right. No, it, you know, it was nothing like that. It was just Lyle is very, he's got a vision mm-hmm. and it goes that way, whether you like it or not. Right. Right. <laughs> you know, and that's great. Yeah. That's what all artists are. You know, this is my vision. Now, if I'm completely off track and you, you're able to, you know, convince me that I'm not, Sorry, screw you. It's still going my way. Right. No, I'm, right. But no, it's just how Lyle is, and that's why his music sounds like it does. Yeah. You know, very arranged and, and very well thought out. Huh. Uh, tell me about um, starting McBride and the Ride. Because mm-hmm. I feel like that's around that same time or well, a little I, later. This is where the, the what I was talking about, the evolution kind of happens, and I look back at my age and go, wow, this led to that, that led to this, this led to that. And so what we just talked about with like Matt McKenzie, me bringing Matt out to Lucky's when Matt really didn't want to listen right. to country music particularly right. and kind of hooked him on that. And then Matt calling Matt Rawlings. Matt Rawlings was a jazzer too. He didn't really care for country music necessarily, but he saw the, he loved the the musicality of the band. Yeah. And so there he is. And next thing you know, we meet Lyle Lovett. And next thing you know, Matt Rawlings moves to Boston to go to Berkeley. Uh, Matt McKenzie moves to Nashville. I get approached by Tony Brown when I told him after touring with Lyle for several years, I'm like, okay, I've done this with Lyle. Love it. But I want to do my own thing, you know, so I'm playing here and I've done some two or three years of touring with Lyle already at this point. And this is about 90 or 91. And I get a call from Tony Brown. It's like out of the blue. You know, I know Tony Brown, who he is, of course, because he'd produce these records, and now he's the at the time VP of MCA Records. He calls me up out of the blue and says, Ray, Tony Brown. I'm like, <laughs> what's Tony Brown doing calling me? He goes, man, I hear you're not going out with Lyle this summer. And I'm like, 
yeah, you know, I, I kind of like to stay here and work on my own stuff, you know. And he goes, well, let me tell you what I've been thinking about doing. I've got, he said, I've had this idea for a band for the label. Would you be interested in that? He said, I, I found a guy that's got some material that I think would be a great direction. And if you are, I have my two front men. Terry, this guy's name is Terry McBride. I, I met him. He brought me some songs. And and originally, he wanted to put a band together with Nashville hot pickers like uh, Albert Lee, Larry London, and several other people he mentioned. But he could never get the schedules to work. Uh-huh. So he said, um, you know, this is something I've been wanting to do. Would you be interested in doing it? I said, well, yeah, <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. of course. Well, you know, I think if you went out with Lyle, this would be a good opportunity to really start thinking about that. And we could, uh, okay, I guess I'm going out with Lyle, you know, <laughs> so I did, of course. And I met Terry that summer in Austin. He came to a show at the Paramount Theater and we hit it off. I mean, Terry's funnier than shit. And we laughed the whole time and and we hit it off personally. And then literally um, just a few months later, Tony flew us to Nashville and Terry was living in Austin at the time, and Billy Thomas lived in Nashville. Billy had been a member of Vince Gill's band and Emmylou Harris's band, the hot band. So Tony knew Billy through all that stuff, knew Billy was a singer and a drummer, great drummer. Um, he'd played on Marty Stewart's Hillbilly Rock album at that point, I think, and you know, done a lot of stuff. Played with Rick Nelson's band, oh, and cool. was from L.A. and stuff. So anyway, <clears throat> he said, well, I'm going to introduce you guys to a guy I think would be a great another part of the band, Billy Thomas. He's a great drummer and stuff. Okay. And so we got together with Billy and then Tony said, I have a steel player as well. That was also in Emmylou's band. His name is Steve Fischel. I think he'd be a good fit. Okay. So we all met. We basically met one day, the next day we were at SRR rehearsing Hmm. and just working up some of these songs that Terry had had in his back pocket. And, uh, Hmm. it so happens that we unbeknownst to us that we were all singers but we had a harmony blend that was mm. like brothers. Mm-hmm. It was just happened. Billy's got that high tenor, and as you can tell, I have kind of a low voice, so mm-hmm. I was more baritone. And although I can flip and sing some high parts, which I do, uh, but it just worked. Mm. And literally, Tony came in that day after we'd rehearsed a couple hours to hear what we'd done, and he goes, "Man, you guys got a deal. If you want one, we're like, okay, okay. where do I sign? Yeah, right. And you know, and it just it developed from there, and we had a ball, and and then. Unfortunately, things happen after a few years. We were actually on the rise and, you know, things were really looking up and we were, we were going up. We were not stagnant by any means in our career. We were starting to have hits. And at first it was weird because we'd released a couple songs that didn't do anything. Mm. That's back when there was, you know, all these video shows on. And so we finally released a song called Can I Count on You, which was a ballad. And it all of a sudden, it just connected with Mm. the fans and the first gig we played was with um, opening for the Judds because we had mm. the same manager as the Judds, Winona, Winona and Naomi. And um, we went out, and we'd been off for about a month <clears throat> trying to promote these records. Went on a big radio tour, the whole thing. And so people knew who we were. It's just trying to get a, that one hit, like right. Buck Owen said, right. all you need is one song, right? That's right. And so sure enough, man, Can I Count on You struck a nerve because it was so such a real kind of song. And so anyway... That song came out, so we went and did this gig with the Judds somewhere. I don't know if it's Alabama or somewhere, and we get up there and we play it, and we go into that song, and the whole crowd starts applauding. We're like, "What the hell?" At that point, we're like, "Wow, 
that something's different here. Mm-hmm. And so when we finished the set, I remember we, we were going to go out and cause part of the thing you do is you go out and sign autographs, do the meet and right. greet thing. And we walked around the corner and people were screaming and we're like, <laughs> is Winona behind us? Right, what is right. it? No, they were, they were actually screaming for McBride and the ride. Wow. And that was, that kind of, you know, started our career really. Yeah. And so from that point on the next couple of years, we toured extensively for a couple of years and then then you know record labels like to get in there and meddle with things they shouldn't and which what is what exactly what they did mm. and so needless to say we split up and um and then several years went by and we got back together and you know there was a little bit of weirdness for a while because we were all kind of married you know and it was like any kind of divorce and it was right. w- weird but but everybody got over that and Terry, we, we hooked up with Terry in Nashville doing something. I don't remember what it was, but, uh, we sang together. We're like, we got to do this, you know? Yeah. So we got back together in 2002 and made a record with Matt Rawlings as the producer. Oh, cool. And, um, full circle. Show yeah. Right, right. And so here's that evolution right, thing. Right? right. So, and Matt had always played on the records too. He'd played piano on, oh, okay. on, on our early records, the McBride and the ride stuff. Cause well, he was the a call in Nashville and, he, and my close buddy too. Right. 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 And so, um, you know, anyway, so Matt ended up producing that record. And unfortunately, we, we were on a label called Dual Tone, and they were an indie label. And, and country radio was really getting weird at that point. And it, was, it didn't know where it was going. And, you know, and we released a song. We rec- recorded Squeezebox, the old Who song. Uh-huh. And they were like, country radio was like, oh, this song's way too, you know, too risque for country radio. And then, like, three months later, Save a Horse, Ride a Cowboy comes in. You know, it's like... <laughs> Okay. <laughs> right. Weird. Right. But anyway, but we also recorded a song called Amarillo Sky, which is a song I found going out to the studio one day. And uh, it was, everybody agreed, man, this sounds like a hit. So we recorded it. And that became the name of the record, Amarillo mm. Sky. Mm. Well, when Dual Tone couldn't make anything happen, then, it, the, you know, we it's just nothing happened. So right. we just kind of, okay. But then a year later or so, Jason Aldean cut Amarillo Sky and became a big hit. Wow. <laughs> and and Terry talks about it on stage. He says, you know, I got a call from Michael Knox, who produced that stuff. And he said, Terry, um, hope you don't mind, but we're going to cut uh, Amarillo Sky on on uh, Jason Aldean. Hope, you know, and actually, we're just going to rip off you guys' version of it. That's okay. <laughs> Terry Terry says, like, well, at least if you're going to get ripped off, it's nice to get a call first. Right. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and so sure enough, I mean, you listen to Jason Aldean's version of it and it's got almost all the licks and everything we did oh, no with shit. the song. So that's what happens, you know? Yeah. But we still play it live in the set now and we've gotten back together again. This is here we are third, 20 years later. Third time's a charm. And it, it is as much fun, if not more than now than it was. That's and awesome. We just recorded some new music and I'm actually going to Nashville next week to work on that. We're going to record some more in May and we're just having a big time. That's awesome. Fun. Yeah, harmonies are still there, and you know we're still alive. I I tell you, um, finding finding that finding a band and voices that can blend that that send the goosebumps, you know, that's a very rare thing, right? And you know what that is? You you have that harmony thing with well, your band. Yeah, I mean that's and I was thinking about it's hard to deny that, and it you is. and and if and if and if it's not there, it's just not there. There's no amount of practicing it, it it comes down to like the physicality of your vocal cords and and as you say it's important to have someone who can do the high stuff or be versatile enough to do low and high like but that that's one that's a skill set 
it's that na- it's that natural sounding harmony that makes it almost sound like one voice. You know, there's not a lot of wah 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 wah. It's just bah. You know, yeah. The the just somehow the tones yeah. blend. Right. You know, unexpectedly in our case, like brothers, like right. You know, something like I don't know who, like Gatlin Brothers, for instance. I mean, you listen to those guys; they're brothers, and they they have a brotherly harmony. Yeah. You know. Yeah. I'm here to tell you about Rare Disease Renegades. Rare Disease Renegades is a nonprofit. It's a 501c3 founded by my friends Billy and Michelle. It's a charity created to accelerate science. In 2020, Billy and Michelle's son, Caffrey, was diagnosed with Duchenne muscular dystrophy. This is a rare disease caused by a genetic mutation that renders muscles unable to recover from activity. It starts with the legs, then all limbs, and ultimately impacts the lungs and heart. There's no cure for this life-limiting disease. Caffrey is gonna be 12 this May, and we need science to move a bit faster for him. I hope that you take a moment to check out rarediseaserenegades.org and find a way to support this worthy cause. Let's talk about the pandemic. Uh, we don't have to dwell on it. Yeah, let's not. Let's not dwell on it. <laughs> but as I mentioned on the break, you know, you are a, a singer-songwriter, um, creative human. So I want to know how you stayed creative. Um, maybe there was, maybe you found a silver lining in that period of time. But also, you are a business owner, restaurant owner, live music venue owner, and just I some of those challenges maybe share how you overcame them. Hmm. Still trying to. Yeah. Are you? <laughs> you're still feeling the effect of it? Oh hell yeah, yeah. I don't think things are gonna really get back to some sense of real normalcy for if ever. I don't know when it comes to bar owning a, a restaurant bar. Unfortunately. Things have changed. We've had to adjust what we do. Um, we're still trying to figure that out. Mm-hmm. I mean, Handlebar J has been the same for ever since I was a little kid. So we've had to downsize our menu. We're still working on that. We, you know, we're trying to figure out how to do it effectively with less staff, mm-hmm. which everybody is. Right. So those are the main number one things right now we're, we're dealing with. Um, still dealing with staffing oh yeah, issues. Constantly, yeah. I, I don't know where they are, where the people are that, that used to want to work, but they're just not out there for whatever the reason i don't know but it's not like it was five years ago or you know whatever it's very much different um so i don't know if it's just restaurant i I know it's not just restaurants because i talk to people in all kinds of other industries that are having the same problem a friend of mine owns prestige cleaners same thing i just saw him yesterday and i was telling him he goes oh i know we're we're dealing with the same thing Hmm. so it's not just restaurants it's everything Mm -hmm. Uh, construction all that stuff. So we're all adjusting. And, um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's challenging. It really is Mm -hmm. to try to figure out what and how to do that. And still luck, lucky for us, Handlebar J is such a popular place. People love it. Um, so, you know, the good news is we have, we have, um, customers and people that love the place that come back year after year and night after night sometimes. Yeah. And so that's a good thing. Um, the other, the other, the hard part is sometimes servicing them like we want to, but you know, everybody's starting to understand. 
Mm-hmm. This is what we're all dealing with. So mm-hmm. we kind of have a bit of an excuse, you know, mm-hmm. unfortunately. But, but I mean, even the fast food places have had to adjust how they do business. Right. So that's what we're doing. Musically, for me, during that period of time, a couple of years ago when we had to shut down, I actually kind of enjoyed the break, to be honest with you, because we'd been basically working nonstop since my mom passed away in 2017 and hadn't taken much of a break. And so that five weeks of being closed was actually kind of nice. I got up, I got into a routine where I was getting up at six in the morning and maybe five 30. Cause you know, what else are you going to do? Right. You, you, you didn't know what to do. You shouldn't, you can't really go anywhere at that point. Right? right. Everything was closed. So luckily I have a guitar. And so I spent every morning getting up and practicing for three, four hours. Wow. And, uh, you know, I, and I think back to that a few years ago and I, right now, and I play it sometimes a night and I go, I don't feel any effect of all that practice. I'm not sure why, but anyway, what, what does, what does practicing look like for you? Oh, I was just, you know, trying to learn new stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a guy, Barry Harris, that's a, a, a piano player that's educator. He's, he's in his nineties now, but piano player out in um, New York and, he has mentored a lot of great, great jazz players. And over the last, I don't know, five, six, seven years now, maybe, I really got into watching. A, there's a lot of stuff on YouTube of Barry Harris, his concept. And he's got this um, uh, diminished scale. The, the, it's a jazz scale, basically. Anyway, it's built on sixth chords, mm. a six chord and a diminished chord and a six chord. And, you know, six chords are the same thing as a minor seventh chord and a minor six chord is the same thing as a dominant ninth chord. It's just all this stuff just started like Whoa. totally making sense to me, which I should have <laughs> learned years ago, but the way Barry Harris explained it and, you know, again, you can find it on YouTube and there's tons of guys that are, that, that totally take it and, and tear it apart. Um, and try to explain it. If you didn't catch certain parts of Barry's explanation of it, I mean, you got to go back and watch these things, but anyway, mm-hmm. he, huge influence on on my learning in the last few years especially hmm. so i've really dug into all that stuff trying to just really dissect where things come from hmm. musically you know hmm. and it's really helped me a lot i i if nothing else it's just for my own you know screwed up wanting to know more music mm-hmm. why i don't know hmm. it's just just what i do yeah <laughs> i should check that out i i'm i'm feeling like I'm plateauing with my skill level on the mm-hmm. guitar. So I'm always curious what tools people are using and finding um, because I'm definitely feeling like I need to. And I feel like that will affect, once I break through a little bit, that'll affect creativity. And and that's typically what happens, right? You, Absolutely. You start messing with a, a different tuning or whatever, just new voicings, chord voicings, unlock different melodies and, you know, um, so that's something that that I hope to prioritize this year is just just finding some tools, setting some time aside, especially when it's you know when you're working five nights a week. Like the last thing I want to fucking do is <laughs> practice guitar. No, I understand. You but know me. You know, but uh, for me that the and I still try to do it as much as I can in the mornings. That particular time though, there wasn't a lot going on, so mm-hmm. it and I got to the point where I was like. Man, I'm looking forward to getting up tomorrow because it's fresh, you know. Mm-hmm. And that's the other thing is when you're going through that stuff, the Barry Harris stuff is such such you know intellectual kind of learning that you got to really 
you got to really find it. You got to really figure it out. Oh, I get it. Mm. You know, you got to have that aha moment. Mm -hmm. And I've had a few of those. Mm. Um, but again, you know, and every day I, I go through those, those, um, and what you're saying, the voicings, that's mm. a huge part of what the Barry Harris deal is. Mm. You know, a lot of inversions and voicings and how you movement, you know, it's movement through things. And, and, you know, you're already a great player and you play the stuff you play great. And so that will definitely open your mind to mm. some new, new sounds. Barry and, Harris. And yeah. Barry Harris. And I got to see him play at the, where was it? Uh, in uh, Greenwich Village, I, matter matter of fact, we were out on tour with Lyle. We were staying across the bridge in New York, um, just across from the city. So we took the train and went over to saw Barry. Barry Harris was playing um, in one of the club. I can't think of the club now. Cafe Wa or what's no, the other was, one down uh, there? I can't remember. Yeah, which one? But anyway, he happened to be there on a night we were off, wow. and so Joanne, my fiance, was in town too. Um, we had a couple nights off so matt rawlings myself and uh the trumpet player that was playing with lyle at the time we all jumped in the, in a cab once we got over to the the uh grand central station and went and saw barry play that night it was cool. awesome yeah. he's 90 years old wow and, you know matt was i don't know that matt was hip to him until i turned him on to him and then he was like wow you know being a great yeah. piano player he is right it was it, but you know barry's very influ influential you'll dig it check yeah, it out yeah. i will i will and plus, Pat Martino was, I have to say, is another huge influence on me. Gosh, you know, lost him this year, unfortunately. But, um, you know, Pat, there's a lot of great YouTube stuff on Pat Martino. So I've studied that as well. Mm -hmm. And Pat would say, you know, when I get up every morning and I have my coffee and, you know, he talks this way to you on, on you know, the mm -hmm. beauty, of, beauty of YouTube, right? Right. Um, but I've been listening to Pat for, you know, 30, 40 years now. But um, anyway, he talks about when I get up and I have my coffee and then I, you know, I, I'm, it's discovery. He talks about discovery. Yeah. And so I get it, you know, wow. it's important. Yeah. For me. Uh, well, I think just in general, right? Is, I mean, yeah. once, once you feel like you've figured it all out, like where do you possibly go from there? No way. <laughs> right? No way. I once mean, you've figured it out, you're done. You're right. <laughs> right. Yeah. I don't think that's going to happen. Time to pack it up. I, every day I go... You know, I think I thought I'd figure this out, but no, I haven't. I got to go back to the drawing board again. But, right. But it's, you know, I'll forever learn. And I think having a guitar to do that is uh, it's an expressive instrument and it's it's fun. And it's it's like putting together a puzzle for me. kind of. Yeah. Yeah, she's at bottom. I want to hold her tight. I want to sip her so slowly I want to love her all night Yeah, she keeps me warm On the coldest of nights She's that bottle of fire That burns up the sky Yeah, she's that bottle that burns through my soul Won't you taste her on your lips There ain't no letting go Just like that bottle She won't ever ask why Gonna give her all of my love 
Tell me about this most recent project that you shared with me. Um, Josh Scott. Josh Scott is the artist, local guy. Local guy. And what was the name of the song? Uh, I played you this time. Uh huh. Was the song, and I also played you a song called "That Bottle." Josh had uh, he had submitted it to the iHeartRadio Battle of the Bar Bands, Jack Daniels Battle of the Bar Bands contest. Uh huh. It was um, a Jack Daniels uh, promotion thing, right? <laughs> and uh, Josh had just uh, somebody told him about it, and so he submitted this song, "That Bottle," that we recorded last summer, and it totally ended up winning the entire freaking contest awesome. throughout the country and so josh has been invited to play these iheart radio shows and you know josh is a he's a arizona boy he was driving a dump truck a year and a half ago and we recorded these songs and they've gotten him a lot of attention and um so i'm i'm you know i got to co-write some of these songs with him and um because he needed the music and he he just uh had a melody and and some lyrics and so i sat down with him and you know um we recorded the songs and they came out great. I had my friend Chuck Ainley in Nashville mix them. And because I told Josh, I said, you know, I think we need to do this right. And yeah. just send them to Chuck and see if he'll mix for us. And he did. And and they sound great. So you can find them at Josh Scott Music. And Josh is out there playing all over the place. And he's a he's a heck of a promoter, too. He promotes his music. And, and that's what you got to do these days. So Well, it, it sounds phenomenal. And I'm, I'm, I just find... The process that you described uh, to me about how they came about to be kind of a not like a non unconventional way, right? <laughs> of writing a tune. You, I just have lyrics and a melody, so you get to kind of put the pieces together, you know, with your with certain chords and and he, you know, as you said, didn't doesn't play an instrument, so he doesn't really have much input into it, but can say yes and no. I just find that process to be interesting. Yeah. Had you ever done that before? I have, yeah. I have done that. Um, um usually I don't get credit for it, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I just go in and do it and then record the song for the artist. Sometimes I don't want to take credit for it. Right. <laughs> no, but in this case, um no, in this case, you know, I Josh came to me kind of out of the blue, and I told you this earlier, but um, he came to Handlebar one night and said, uh, Mr. Herndon, you know, and he's six seven or whatever he is, six foot seven, and big old boy. Yeah. And, you know, I'm like, uh, yes, sir. <laughs> and uh, he said, I'm a big fan of yours, and McBride and the Ride, and this and that. And he said, I, I got these songs, and, you you know, I usually shy away from that sure. kind of conversation. Right. Typically, I go, okay, great, see you later. <laughs> But um, anyway, I I said okay, come up and sing with us, and let me just hear your let me see your hear your, you know, hear how you sound. And so he got up and sang some Hank Jr. And you know, being a, the big guy that he is, he demands a presence on stage, and yeah. he has a big voice. And I and I heard it. I'm like okay. So he said, "Can I play you my songs?" And so I said, "Okay." He came over and started playing me these, um, basically singing these songs right, to right, me. And right. I picked up the guitar and said, "Okay." And so I wrote wrote a few charts on where I heard it kind of going. Do you like this? Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. And so that's how I did it. And so we did that to about four or five, maybe six songs, I guess. And Gary Brzezzi and John Willis and I, and Mike Smith on steel went over to Otto's uh, studio and recorded the songs. And they started coming out really even better than I had, had expected. Yeah. And so that prompted me to tell Josh, you know, I think you need to, you know, spend a little more money, 
and, right. and have uh, one of my buddies in Nashville mix it, which we did. And and after talking to and Chuck Ainley is the guy that mixed it, and he did a great job. Um, but I talked to Chuck about it, and he said, you know, you've you by recording these songs, you know, you've given this guy a career if he chooses to take it. Wow. And Chuck produces George Strait and has engineered all that, all the Dire Straits. He works with you know wow. Mark Knopfler. He's worked with everybody. Chuck has forever. He was Tony Brown's main engineer for every wow. matter of fact he's just recording our new mcbride and the ride music we're recording awesome too. and chuck's great he's a great guy but anyway um it turned out great and so here we are we're now we're looking to what whatever the next step is i don't know yeah you know yeah josh is out there doing his thing and he's gotten a lot of work and he's trying to innovate his career you know like aren't we all <laughs> well and and what an interesting time to be doing that and mm-hmm. and well I've hired you on a session before and you just mentioned, you know, you kind of quickly write this chart to Josh's tune. I've seen your charts. I can't make heads or tails of them. (laughs) Is that, is that like a Nashville style chart or is that like a chart that is very specific to you? Well, if I'm doing it just for me, I still write it. I'll write a Nashville number chart for myself. Okay. Um, Usually if it's really fast, I kind of scribble it really quick. If I'm, uh-huh. If I just need to, if I have to write it for other guys to follow, I try to write it obviously right. with a first ending or a second ending. But gotcha. if I know it's something that I'm just following yeah. and I don't have the time to. It looked like hieroglyphics. <laughs> well, you know. There was like dashes, yeah, forward right. slashes, yeah, there was like well, semicolons, there was yeah. exclamation points. Right, of course. <laughs> you add it all up at the end and see what it comes up to. Is this worth a shit or not? No, but. Well, I remember... Um, it was for the Worth the Fight session. It was mm. at Shatam with Otto. Mm. And I brought you in for two tunes. You did slide uh, you did slide guitar on the drummer. And then you played a nylon string on a tune of mine called Morning Sun. Yeah, great, great song. Beautiful song. Thank you. Really, really cool. And I remember... And I you're, did, you know, you're such a great artist anyway. It was thanks. It was a pleasure to be able to do that. means a lot. Um I just remember looking over your shoulder as you're writing this chart out, and I'm mm-hmm. like, "What is this?" Yeah, but, and th- but you listened to it a couple times. You kind of made a, a you made a first draft, second draft, cleaned some stuff up, and then you just went out and just fucking assassinated it. And I was like, "Holy shit, that's a fucking pro!" Oh, you know. <laughs> I mean, I st- I still listen uh, on occasion to that to those takes, and I'm like, "Man, that was just a magical moment for me." putting that band together in the studio, cutting these songs. I mean, I don't know if, if that's a, if that is uh, as enjoyable for you, like that part of the process is very oh, enjoyable. Yeah. Oh, totally. I you mean, know. you know, getting to, I was thinking about the, on the way here today, I was thinking about getting to record songs. It's, that's a fun, that's, that's fun for me. Unfortunately, I don't get to do enough of it here in town anymore. Uh, I take whatever I can get, you know, yeah. uh, when they come along and it's always fun. It's always a challenge, you know, to write the chart and then try to come up with something that, that fits the song. Mm-hmm. Hopefully that works good. You know, um, sometimes, you know, you got to do it fast. Right. Um, I, I like to spend a little more time than having to do it fast. Sometimes right. you have no choice, you know, right. so you kind of, you do it and you go, well, I hope that was you listen to it later and go, ah, I wish I could have changed that or this, you know, but, yeah. but anyway, for the most part, um, you know, I, everything that I always record, I go, uh, ah, I would have rather 
maybe done this or that, but huh. I'm the, my worst critic too, right. you know, right. Sometimes you just have to do it and let it go. Yeah. But there's obviously I do like to carve out stuff and really try to, you know, as I go along, as I, you know, get more experienced with it all the time, I, you know, is this the right sound for is this guitar the right sound mm -hmm. is, you know, is this the right part with this guitar or whatever? Right. We just did this stuff with McBride and the ride in Nashville and we got to record in Peter Frampton's studio. And cool. so, yeah, with Chuck at the helm and <clears throat> I was using my amps and stuff, but, um, and I don't have a lot of guitars in Nashville. I've left a few there at Terry's place, you know, for gigs and stuff, but you know, I want to make sure that we get something good for this new round of recording we're doing. And so Peter Frampton's got all these guitars oh, hanging in the studio yeah, and he's got a, like a rich duo jet. That's like a 1968 that he played with, with, um, uh, the, what was his band early on before um, Humble Pie? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> anyway, Chuck's like, yeah, man, you can use any of these guitars. I'm like, okay. Wow. So anyway, I, I plucked that thing off for this tune called Along Comes a Girl. And, man, I plugged it into my, my, my amp. I have this great Guytron amp that's a custom-built amp in, in Indiana or whatever. But anyway, it just sounded great. I'm yeah. like, oh, my God. It was just it was just a whim. I was like, I got to play that guitar. Let me try right. it on this. Right. I play. It's just like I'm like, oh my god, what a sound, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I played it, and everybody's like, oh man, that guitar sounds great, you know. And so, and then there's a telly he's got in there. So I played that on another tune called uh, "It's Cool to Be Country" is the name of the song, and it was perfect. I mean, this telly, right? Just great sound. It's Peter Frampton stuff, right? Yeah, For yeah. God's sakes, he's probably fine. had his whole lifetime to find these. Plus, he's got a whole room full of like. Plexi marshals and all this yeah. stuff and the talk boxes and stuff. Oh, and, yeah. Yeah. And yeah. it's, you know, anyway, so, um, so I get that duo jet off the wall and I go play it. So, so, uh, track sounds great and everything. Can't wait to hear it. Yeah. It's me, well, me too. I haven't heard it in a while, but anyway, uh, we're going to sing next week on the stuff to harmonies on it. But Love anyway, it. so Terry was back in the studio like a couple weeks later to do some vocals with Chuck and, and whoever Frampton's guy is, was there, you know, yeah. and must do his, his, his gear or whatever. And Terry's like, yeah, oh yeah, we Ray played that guitar. He's like, Oh, that's one of the ones you're not supposed to play. <laughs> like, oops, Whoops. we shouldn't have told him <laughs> too late. Uh, yeah, <laughs> but it's fun. You know, you get a guitar. That's as much as like what we're talking about, the sound of, of something, to, to find a great sound, you know, I always wonder myself, I'm like, how does somebody like, you know, how does Dean Parks, Dean Parks is a great session player who I've, uh, uh, again, another guy I've fortunately gotten to work with and mm. gotten to know and talking about Steely Dan played on all, most every Steely Dan record. Really? Yeah. Dean, just look him up. I and, will. Yeah. And Dean, matter of fact, Dean even co-wrote and played on uh, Dancing Machine, the Jackson 5 and he co-wrote the song. Wow. And he also played on all that Michael Jackson stuff, like Billy Jean. And I mean, Dean is a long time Whoa. LA session dude that's just, you know, his his resume is just ridiculous. Yeah. But if you're a Steely Dan fan, yeah. you'll know who Dean Parks is. Well, I got to do some You research. better read your your credits. <laughs> <laughs> but it was always Dean Parks and Larry Carlton. Right. Or Dean Parks and, you know, whoever the guitar player was. But Dean was always kind of the guy that, that did all the... I mean, he, he plays on, um, uh, that's Dean all over, um, Haitian divorce. 
Oh yeah, Haitian divorce. Yeah, no that's shit. him. And I and John Willis and I were talking about that tune, and I said, I think that's Dean playing. It's got this talk box thing. Yes, I think all through it. Yeah, exactly. And yeah. Dean apparently, I read up on it because I didn't know the history, but Dean played the guitar, and then Walter Becker went in after the fact. I think it was after, and put the talk box part over the on the guitar oh, parts. Wow. <laughs> so, wow. Anyway, but Dean is just the coolest guy in the world. And uh, but my point is that Dean always comes up with like the most brilliant guitar parts, and you know, just to just to have gotten to know him, and we just got to play on Lyle Levitt's rec- new record that's coming out cool. uh, this next month, actually. So I got to play on that whole entire session with Dean, and I played on sessions with him before, but this is really the first time that uh, not only have we played live together a lot and got to know each other as friends. But now we're in the studio and we're we're playing. I'm we're the guitar players wow. on the session, you know. Wow. So I'm just like pinching myself, right. you know, trying to learn and absorb everything I can. And, yeah. But anyway, but trying to come up with these sounds that he kind of, you know, why why did you choose that guitar? Why did you choose that amp? Right. You know, and it's it always kind of boils down to me, you know, answering that question myself. Why did I choose that guitar? Why I don't know. Yeah. It sounded good. Right. And I I've done sessions where I'm like, eh, I'm not digging this one. I put it down. Let me pick up the telly. Nah, that one's. Let me pick up the three thirty-five. Oh, that sounds great. You know, huh, so you huh, for some yeah. reason or another, I right, don't know. Right, it just speaks to the song. Right, but I'm getting better at that. I hope you know at, at discerning. Yeah, what to hopefully what when to, and how. Yeah, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. what sounds better for the song or whatever. But yeah, uh, I mean, when we did your 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 session, I know I was playing acoustic on that. I, you know, I probably didn't have a lot of acoustics to choose from at the time, but. Um, you know, acoustic Sounds guitars great. are the same thing, you know. Right, right, right. How has, oh, well, and this, I mean, this maybe is, is a topic for part two of this podcast with you. Mm. But, um, yeah, I'm taking up all your time. No, I'm no, no. Yak- yakking too much. No, 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 I love it. Um, I'm just curious in your eyes how Nashville has changed and maybe one or two aspects, how it's maybe better and oh, right. one or two how how it's not better. Mm. <laughs> well, when I moved there in about 94, Four or five after McBride and the ride split up, I decided to go ahead and pick up and move from Phoenix to Nashville, which I did. And it was still really small town, it seemed to me. And it was great. I was I got into doing a lot of songwriting with co-writing with people and it was just had a small town vibe. And then um I lived there for, I don't know, thirteen years or so. Wow. And um uh, and I saw it really starting to change, especially the music side. The people were getting younger in the in the positions of the, like the Tony Brown guys were all those guys were kind of going away and this new young regime was coming in and you know they have better ideas than you and all that stuff and I just I just wasn't I just wasn't feeling it mm-hmm. <laughs> you know mm-hmm. so I had a manager that lived in LA she coerced me into moving to LA which I did but so I moved away in about 2008 I think and uh, then I came back to Phoenix but I really didn't go back to Nashville for a long time. And um, I'd go back there from time to time to play with Lyle at, uh, you know, and stay a day or two and just go, wow, it's really starting to change. Now, this last year, a couple years, I've been going back there quite a bit because the McBride and Ride thing. We've been recording, mm-hmm. we've been playing, we played a gig in Nashville a couple months ago at Third and Lindsley and first show in Nashville in 20 years. And, wow. But it's it has really changed in a way that. How do you even describe it? Um, for for the city, better. For right. the music, 
not so much better. I don't right, think. Right. Uh, for me, anyway. I mean, you listen to I, I, you know, I just I I can't listen to country radio anymore. Yeah. I, you know, there was a time where you know, of course, I was listening in the '90s, and I think that music is still relevant to a lot of people, especially my age. Maybe I'm just turning into my my dad or grandfather. I don't know. Right. right. But it, the music doesn't really appeal to me. It doesn't have the heart. Modern country. So the modern country yeah. it doesn't. It doesn't do anything for me. Give me some Merle Haggard or some James Taylor. You yeah. Know, you and I are both way into. And yeah. I just I like music that just makes you feel something and this music doesn't you know once in a while something sneaks through that might you know yeah but uh, for the most part it just uh, do you think that that's a reflection on the industry or is yes. that a is that an evolution of taste you know like both maybe yeah. uh, i think they I saw them really trying to reel in the younger crowd. I get it. We all have to do that. Right. Even like in my business at Handlebar J, we, right. we can't rely on an older crowd because they keep getting older and older. Right. You got to keep bringing in new blood. I yeah. get that part of it. So, you know, and it's not, it's not something that I, I think is wrong. I think it's just, I think the people that came up uh, in those positions, maybe, I don't know, maybe they didn't grow up with, Merle Haggard and James Taylor. I don't know. Right. But they didn't, they don't seem to sign the, the artists that really have the, the soul, mm. you know, I mean, there's a lot of great singers out there, no doubt about it with these, all the shows, the American Idol shows and all right. that stuff. Right. Yeah. And there's a lot of incredible singers out there. Right. But they, do they really connect with you? I mean, when you hear no. some of these people, I mean, God bless them. They right. have a great instrument and a great right. talent, but for some reason, I mean, you put, I mean, here's a great comparison. You hear some of these people like that, and then you put Bob Dylan next to him. Right. Could you imagine? Right. If Bob Dylan was on the show for the first time, they'd, they would okay. vote him off in like five seconds. They wouldn't probably. let him in the building. So it's just, there's a perfect example of the, 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 the gap. Right. That's, I don't know. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, I, you know, I'm still all about making as good a music as I can for whatever, for whatever it's worth, you know, yeah. even if it's just for me and you to listen to, yeah. you know, if you'll listen to it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and if you don't no, it's, uh, I don't know. I just want to make, I want to make something, somebody feel something. Right. Or, you know, if I'm going to write something, let's make something that makes somebody feel something. Yeah. You know, right. That's it. Let's get to, uh, let's get to some questions okay. that I, uh, I reached out to some of our colleagues and I told them that that, oh we, boy. that, that we were chatting. Oh boy! Here we so go. I <laughs> let's go to John Wills. Oh boy, John Wills. Okay, first of all, he's uh, he's a little bitter because you won a Ladmo bag <laughs> and he didn't. Yeah, and I rub it in his face all the time. <laughs> Can no. you tell me what this Ladmo bag is? Yeah. I, oh, you don't know what a Ladmo bag is. Well, I kn I know about the show. Yeah. But I don't know what a Ladmo bag is. Well, Ladmo was, you know, the second half of the Wallace and Ladmo duo. And both of Wallace and Ladmo are gone now. God rest their souls. They brought a lot of joy to all those kids in Arizona and adults for many, many years. Yeah. They were a, a show that was on TV. Of course, Arizona people will know. But people that are like you that are from Connecticut. Where are you from? You're from Massachusetts. Massachusetts. Don't know Wallace and Ladmo. No. But um, long time, 40, 50 year run show. Um, but Ladmo had a thing called a Ladmo bag. So he packed, um, 
a lot of like goodies, gift certificates and toys and this and that in the Ladmo bags. And so if you won a Ladmo bag, like in one of their contests or okay. whatever, yeah. like whether you were on their live show, they would do things like Wallace go or Ladmo go to seat three row four and give that person or that kid a Ladmo bag. And they, uh-huh. oh, they were excited uh-huh. anyway, because they had a live studio audience. But so my Ladmo bag, I won when I was, it was in 1972. I was 12 years old. So they were having a contest for Borden ice cream, Borden's ice cream. So the contest was write a commercial for Borden's ice cream and use the tagline, if it's Borden's, it's got to be good. And so I'm like, hey, I can do that. So I remember laying down in my bed bedroom one day and I scribbled out a, a freaking commercial. Huh. I couldn't tell you what it is now. I wish I still had it. But I wrote this commercial and I sent it in and lo and behold, I won the contest. Uh-huh. Wow! So the prize was... Wallace and Ladmo came to my house on a Saturday morning. And, of course, they announced, their, oh, we're going to be at Ray Herndon, the winner of the Borden's Ice Cream commercial next Saturday. And so my house, front yard, was full of kids from the neighborhood, as you yeah. can imagine. Yeah. So Wallace and Ladmo, you know, they staged it, of course, and a Borden's Ice Cream truck. They're hanging on the side of it. It's coming down the street, and they're filming it. And they come to my front door, and we open, oh, my God, it's Wallace and Ladmo. And they give me all this Borden's Ice Cream and all uh, this stuff, you know, I yeah. won. And I, got, and I got to go on the show, read the commercial live, and uh, I got my Latmo bag. And so, John, yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, it's, uh, better luck next time, John. Right. I mean, that's right. Better, be better, next, better luck next life. <laughs> and Dwayne, our guitar player, Dwayne, Dwayne Riston, he also won a Latmo bag. So I, I tell people often in in the handlebar, John, Dwayne and I are the only two on stage that have ever won a Latmo bag. <laughs> So John is an Arizona boy too. So I'm yeah. sorry, John. Sorry, John. Uh, he also would just like you to play wagon wheel. I'd love to play it. If John will play bass on it <laughs> okay, and sing it. I know John does sing it too. From time to time. I won't make him sing, uh, uh, any Chris Stapleton though. Oh, is that a thing? Yeah. John, John loves that song. <laughs> Tennessee whiskey. Tennessee it's, that's whiskey. His signature song. Yeah, that, that you play that. So he, that's his walk-in music kind of thing. Exactly. We yeah. play it, and the girls go crazy and throw their panties. Right. And then we do wagon wheel, and it's his encore. <laughs> um, all right, hold on, one more. And thing. then our friend Lee comes up and pays him a hundred bucks to stop singing it. <laughs> Thank you for doing this. My pleasure. Uh, great to see you. I, I hope to to uh, stop by Handlebar Jays and and check it out. Maybe even tonight. Um, but appreciate you taking the time. Loved hearing the stories. Now I have some homework to do, which is always nice. Thanks for having me. It's it's, it's I'm, gl- I'm glad you're doing this because there's a lot of people um, in this town that um, have some great stories. Yeah. Music stories. You know. Yeah. A lot of great musicians have come out of this town. Yeah. You know. And no. still are coming out of, of this town, you know. I, I I'm all, I'm so grateful that there is such a great musical community. And again, as I mentioned, one of the reasons for doing the podcast was just to reconnect, you know, and to shed some light on people doing cool shit, you know. Great, great and, idea. Um, yeah. Anyway, I appreciate your time. I'm a big fan. Um, psyched to hear the new recordings. Thank you, with McBride and the Right. Are you guys going to be coming through Phoenix? Eventually, yeah, we're gonna we're gonna find a spot, whether it's Handlebar or somewhere. Oh, how cool would so, that be? Yeah. Oh man. Yeah, man. So hope to see you. 
Come by and, and let's do some James Taylor together. Oh, come on. <laughs> uh, I have no business being on that stage. Oh, I, yes, you do. But I will I will oh, yeah, I'll sing James Taylor with you anytime. You just <laughs> point and I'll He's go. He's the man. Yeah. Yeah, we both love JT, that's for sure. <laughs> have you ever like got to meet him or play I, with him? You or? know what? I have not. Um but the funny part is I've gotten to play with just about all of his band. No shit. For most Russ Kunkel. Oh yeah. Andre is on um Arnold McCuller. Yeah. And uh who else? Uh Jimmy Johnson. Leland Sklar, of course. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, not Jimmy and not those guys. My, Mikey the, Landau. I haven't played with Mike Landau, but uh but anyway, you know Yeah. Just Russ and Leland alone. Right. Or, like that was the backbone of that band. Right. And to to get to call them friends and also have played and witnessed the looks back and forth that I imagine they did with James, you know, right. All musicians do, you know, right. When I watch the Troubadour concert here and I'm thinking to myself that very thing, I'm thinking, wow, I've, I've experienced in my life getting to play with these guys. Wow. Who knew, you know, when I was 19, when I was listening to that stuff that I would ever really get to get to know them, let alone play music with right. them on a regular basis, you know, for wow. a lot of, long time. Wow. So very fortunate. Yeah. Appreciate you, Ray. Thanks. I'll let you get to get to getting, but I hope to see you soon and, and really appreciate your time and, and, and you're an inspiration, uh, to so many players. Well, uh, thank you. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks. Keep right. it up. Thanks, Brian. Thanks, Brian. <laughs> <laughs>